give the Lord a hand of praise. He is worthy. If you would, open your Bibles with me to the book of Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, we will begin reading in verse 1. Acts chapter 4, verse 1, when you got it, say so. And it says, now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captains of the temple, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However... Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has, come, has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Lord, thank you for your word that is true. Thank you for your word that changes us, that saves us, that delivers us. God, thank you for the reminder of the greatness of your mercy toward us, God, on the cross. Today, I pray that we would hear what you're saying, that we would be open to your voice, and that we would not be distracted in mind or in heart, God, but that right now we would worship you with all of our being by staying focused and staying fixed on you as we hear your truth. Let us not just be hearers of your word, but let us be doers of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said... Man, you may be seated in the presence of the Lord. If you need an outline, please raise your hand, and the ushers will be sure to get you an outline. We want to be able to, you want to be sure that you're able to follow along in the um, introduction of the sermon. Also, we want to be sure that you're able to take some notes, and, um, and hopefully you will use this outline as a tool to be able to help others grow in their faith by sitting down with them and sharing with them what it is that you are learning on Sundays, um, and so that is my prayer and my hope. And um, as, 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 you, as you know, we are in this series. We started last week in the book of Acts um, entitled Devoted. And we're, and we're talking about devotion because the disciples, we know from Acts chapter 2, that they were devoted to certain things and their devotion overflows throughout the book of Acts. And today we're going to talk about the friction 
that there is in devotion. And I don't know if you realize this, but if you look at your outline there, the mission of the church has never been more important. We, all, we, we, we say things like that, but the reality is that the mission of the church has never been more important. We are living in what many would call that post-Christian culture in which people, uh, if you notice that middle of people who weren't sure what they were, that gap is narrowing. There are less people that are unsure of what they believe, and what we're seeing is we're seeing a growth in the people that are the nuns, they don't believe anything. And we're also seeing an increase in people who are saying, yes, that they're believers and followers of Jesus. So right now, what we have to realize is that there is a great mission in, before us, and we have to realize how important that is. What we have to realize in this mission is, as you continue in your outline here, is that resistance, hostility, and conflict are all realities that surround the friction in our lives and the purpose of God for the church. And so realize this, that we are going to experience friction by way of resistance, by way of hostility, by way of conflict. And why do we know this? Well, if you look, the enemy has been resisting the king and his kingdom since before creation. So before you and I walked on this earth, before Adam and Eve walked on this earth, the enemy has been resisting the king of glory, has been resisting God and resisting God's kingdom. What we also realize is that the world is hostile toward the gospel and the king. So that's another reality that we see within our world. And then there is ongoing conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, the flesh and the spirit and the church and spiritual forces. And so we have conflict. We have all of this resistance. We have hostility that we are going to experience. And we need to know that as you and I are committed to extending the kingdom of God, as you and I are committed to being about the Father's work and seeing God's will established in this earth, we are going to experience friction. But I want you to think about this this morning. The greatest ob obstacle to forward progress is the friction necessary for upward growth. Think about that. The greatest obstacle, the thing that is going to be the, the, the thing that trips us up, the thing that hinders, the greatest obstacle to forward progress is the friction that is necessary for upward growth. Right. If you are going to grow as a believer, guess what you're going to have to be around? You're going to have to be around other believers, are you not? See, because here's the thing. You're not going to grow upwardly if you're not growing, uh, you know, t t together with others. Why? Because you know what? It's real easy to be loving when there's no one to love. It's real easy to forgive when no one offends you. It's real easy to bear with people when you have no one to bear with. That's easy, right? It's easy to be patient when you get everything like you want it, when you want it, right? That's simple. But you get around people and they start offending you, all of a sudden your love, you start to get tested, do you not? You see, and so it's necessary that we have certain things, certain frictions in our lives in order for us to grow upwardly. We need that in our lives. And so we, want, we, we have to expect that these things are going to happen with us. And so today we're going to look at what this resistance, what this hostility, what this conflict looks like. We're going to look first at, what, 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 uh, at some external conflict or, or external resistance that we have here that we see in the book of Acts chapter 4 as the church is progressing forward. We know about the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down. They speak with power, with tongues. The, um, the apostle Peter preaches a message. When he preaches that message, 3,000 people get saved, baptized. They start discipling, developing, and growing. And real shortly after, we see in chapter 3, 
this beautiful miracle of a man. He's sitting by the gate, beautiful. He's crippled in his feet. He can't get up. And as he's sitting there by the gate, beautiful, the scripture tells us that he's looking to um, Peter and John as they're coming toward them. And, and, he's, and he's saying to them, can you all give me a handout? Give me, give me something. Give me some kind of um, way, you know, because I need to eat and stuff like that is basically what he is saying. And what is the response of John? The scripture says that John and Peter looked at him. And when they looked at him, they said, what, silver and gold have we not? But what we have we give you. Get up and walk in the name of the Lord. They grabbed him. The man jumps up, runs into church with them. I mean, literally, the guy couldn't walk. He's in church doing the Holy Ghost hop. Come on now. He's, he's praising the Lord. He's honoring God because he's been healed by the power of God. And guess what happens? All of a sudden, there's some jealousy that starts to rise up within the community of Israel and, and the people that are there. And they're questioning, by what power, what authority have you guys done this? And so now there is this external conflict that comes. But repeat this after me. Say, resistance and hostility should fuel and focus the mission. Resistance and hostility should fuel and focus the mission. What, what happens is we don't, listen, we, we may not want to experience resistance, right? We all want to take the path of least resistance to get anywhere. We want to get there the easiest way with the least amount of problems, right? Some of you, when you're driving places, you like to use, you know, ways, right? Some of y'all like ways, I don't know. Um, so I remember one time someone was telling me about ways, how they loved it, because it would always show them like shortcuts, but they had a, there, there was a crazy situation. So, um, you know, what ways is, is known for is it finds the the the, the path of least resistance, right, for you to get to your destination. Well, in California, they were having wildfires, and guess what was happening? People were using ways, and as they were driving down the road, right, and, and they were looking at the map, the, 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 there was nobody driving down the roads where the wildfires were for a reason. Hello. Well, guess what Waze didn't know? Waze didn't realize there was wildfire there, so guess what it was doing? It was sending everybody while the wildfires, hello, sending everybody in that direction because it didn't. It just realized that was the path of least resistance. Many of us want to take the path of least resistance not realizing that that path can, can also be detrimental, hello. That path can hurt us. That path can hinder us from actually getting to where it is that God wants us to get through. But the truth is that resistance and hostility should fuel and focus the mission. And so what we have here in chapter 4, and we're going to look a little bit at chapter 5 as well, is I want you to notice something. It says here, verse 1, it says, Now as they spoke, speaking of the apostles, to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Verse 5, and it says, And it came to pass on the next day that the rulers, say rulers, rulers, elders, and scribes. And I want to pause there for a moment because I need you to realize with me that when you are looking at the people that were causing this hostility, that were causing this um, resistance to what it was that God was doing, it was the rulers, say rulers. When I say rulers, I'm talking about the governing rulers of the day. Some people, and as I was studying this, I automatically in my head, I was just, oh, it was just the religious rulers. Yes, it's true. They were religious rulers. However, 
There is a caveat to that. It is because Israel had always been a theocracy, meaning that their governing rulers were going to be religious leaders. At this particular point in time, remember, Rome is still in power. But what they were doing was they were allowing the children of Israel to govern themselves in their land under their jurisdiction. And, and, and you know this, I can't throw nobody in jail, can I? I can, I, I can make a citizen's arrest, but I can't throw anybody in jail. I can detain you until the police get here, right? But I can't throw you in jail. Guess what they were able to do? They had power to throw people in jail. You know why? Because they were rulers in their time. They were the governing authorities of their day. And so you got to grasp that when you're looking at what was happening with these people and why this was such a big deal. It wasn't just the pastor up the block saying, hey, man, you need to stop preaching. It was literally the governing rulers who were telling them, stop talking about Jesus. Stop talking about the resurrection. Your life is in jeopardy. Your freedom is in jeopardy. If you continue to talk about the resurrection, we're going to bring you before trial. We're going to bring real charges against you if you continue to speak about the resurrection. See, it should be understood that the church will always be met with intense opposition. You want to know why? Primarily because of the gospel message that we preach. Primarily because of the gospel message that we preach. Church, hear me when I say this. The enemy's not trying to silence us for other things. The enemy wants to silence us because he wants us to stop talking about Jesus. He wants us to stop proclaiming the gospel and the world in which we live. You see, what we have is this. When we think about the gospel, what does the gospel show us? The gospel reveals, reveals to us the holiness of God, reveals to us that God is holy, that God is good, that God created man in his image and in his likeness, and man chose to rebel. And so the next thing that we find in the gospel is what? Is that the gospel confronts the sinfulness of men. How many of y'all know people don't like people to talk about their sin? <laughs> I know you're believers and you're like, please tell me about my sin. You don't want to hear about your sin either. <laughs> it's not just the world. That's us in general. Let somebody come and talk to you and have a conversation with you and come and tell you about your sin. See how you react. You're going to react so nice and humble, right? Oh, thank you so much, brother. <laughs> I know when people come and talk to me about my sin, I'm not always like, oh, yes, I just wanted to hear that. Hello. Right? Yes, thank you so much. I was so unaware of my sinfulness. I appreciate that, right? Like that's, that's usually not how anybody responds, right? Very few people respond with humility when they are confronted with their sin. It's just a reality. And so the world does not want to hear about their sin. It is the same thing when you look at the time that the apostles were preaching. But the gospel doesn't just confront our sin. What does it do? It calls us to repent of our sin. So first and foremost, it shows us what our sin is. But secondly, it tells us you can't keep living like that. You cannot. This is, what the, this, is, this is why the enemy wants the church to be quiet. Because he doesn't, because the world doesn't want to hear about what? They don't want to hear about their sin that they can't continue to live in if they want God's blessing. Hello. And so we have to realize that. But here's the other caveat. Here's the other thing about the gospel. There is this thing about faith in Christ. Because I want you to notice, look at verse 12 really quickly here. He says this. This is what Peter says at the end, like the, red, the, the, the wrapping up of his message to them. They ask him this question about by what authority and what name were they doing this. And notice what Peter does. They didn't ask him how to get saved, did they? That wasn't their question. Their question wasn't, well, you know, how do we get saved? That wasn't what they wanted to know. But you know what Peter did? Peter took this opportunity to go back to what really mattered in church, we need to stay on what really matters. 
which is that we preach this gospel. He says in verse 12, he says, nor is there salvation in any other, in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so guess what he does? Not only does the gospel, not just him, but not only does the gospel confront our sin, not only does the gospel call us to turn from our sin and repentance, but the gospel calls us to put faith in Jesus. It calls us to put faith in Christ. And can I tell you something? People may be like, okay, well, maybe I have a sin issue, and maybe I need to stop doing that sin. But you know what nobody wants to do? In many cases, they don't want to put their faith in Jesus. They want to save themselves. They want to fix themselves up. They want to do it on their own. And sometimes that's in the church as well as outside of the church. They want to do it by themselves. So many in our culture today, you go and you tell them, Jesus is the only way. They don't want to hear that. Hello? They don't want to hear. Some people in the church don't want to hear that. Listen, we live in this church culture right now where you got to be careful because there's people out there that call themselves Christians, which means that they should be Christ followers, followers of Jesus, and yet they're denying the fundamentals of the faith like there is only one way to salvation. The apostles made it crystal clear. The scriptures make it crystal clear. And we have to beware and that we are not silent when those voices start speaking up in our day especially in the name of Christ, especially in the name of Christianity. The church must ensure, listen church, we have to be sure that we are prepared for the friction that is going to happen because of the spiritual battle that we are in. Look at chapter 5 really quickly. In chapter 5, uh, we, we, we know some great things occur. Look at verse 17 here. Verse 17, this is the apostles again, they're, um, they're, they're being imprisoned because of their preaching of the gospel. Verse 17 tells us, then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles, and put them in the common prison, again showing us that they have authority within that jurisdiction, within that place. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, and brought them out, and said, go, stand in the temple, and twiddle your thumbs, and be silent. It's not what he said. He said, go stand in the temple and speak. Say, speak. Speak to the people all the words of this life. What life is that? The life that there is in Christ. Speak those words that are life to them. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those um, with him, which came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought out because now they were going to bring them to trial. But God had liberated them so they could go out there and preach. But let's look down to verse 29. Verse 29 says this, Peter is speaking up after they're questioning him. And if you look at verse 28, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Does that, does that sound familiar, church? Does that not sound like our day? Did we not strictly command you? Oh, we, we don't see because we can't legislate you to shut up. Not yet. Hello. We're getting there. But we can't legislate you to be quiet. But we can do everything we can to make you know you need to be quiet. You don't need to speak. I've said this before. I think I might have said it last week. Some of us, we don't even know when to talk about Jesus. That's why evangelism becomes so difficult because we've been so dumbed down because the culture that wants us to be quiet about the Christ that we're supposed to be proclaiming and declaring. Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. What was their issue? They didn't care about what they were saying as much as the fact that they were saying y'all are guilty. 
Y'all are guilty. You guys are the ones who crucified Jesus. And so what does Peter say to them in verse 29? It says, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. I love that. We ought to obey God rather than men. Church, you should write that down. If you like getting tatted up, you should do that as well. We ought to obey God rather than men. This should be the mantra of the church. We are to obey God rather than men. We are to be moved by the things of God to the degree that we will not bow to the idols of our culture, to the degree that we will not silence, be silenced because of the voices in our culture that are speaking against the church. It doesn't matter what their argument is. It doesn't matter what their agenda is. The reality is God has given us a voice and he has given us a mandate. And the same way that Peter and, and on all of these apostles were willing to give their life is the same way that we should be willing to give our life for this gospel. Is the same way that we should be willing to lose for this gospel. We ought to do what? We ought to speak on, on behalf or we ought to obey God rather than man. Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging him on a tree. Him, God has exalted to the right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And look at their response. They were happy. They were excited. They were elated. Verse 33 says, when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Hallelujah. They don't want to hear about Jesus. They don't want to hear about the resurrection of Christ. They don't want to hear about their guilt and sin. They don't want to hear anything about that. And because of that, they were plotting to kill these guys. And then Gamaliel gives some advice and says, hey, you don't want to find yourself fighting against God. And so let it go. If it's not God, it will dissipate itself. They agreed with them. Jump down to verse 40. And it says, and they agreed with him. <clears throat> and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, look at that. They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, whining and crying. No, they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Church, are you willing to suffer shame for his name? Are you willing to be embarrassed for the cause of Christ? Are you willing to be beaten for the cause of Christ? Are you willing to lose your life for the cause of Christ? Are you willing to do that? Because they were excited that they were able to share in the sufferings that were there for those who were committed to the gospel. Church, I want you to know something. You may not think this, but in the United States of America, we have some level of persecution. But I want you to know it is only going to get worse. It is only going to get worse for Christians as we live in this nation. And I don't tell you that for fear's sake. I'm not trying to make you afraid. I'm trying to make you aware. you got to make a decision. Are you willing to live? Because here's what I know. If you're not willing to stand up now, you're not going to stand up then. If you're not willing to be vocal now, you're not going to be vocal then. If you're not willing to unify with the body now, you're not going to unify with the body then. You're going to be part of that great falling away. You're going to be part of those people who, you know, you're just walking around and, and, and you have this casual Christianity. I heard a preacher say this one day. I thought that this was pretty awesome. He said, casual Christians will be casualties. It's a reality. 
Casual Christians will be casualties because when the pressure gets, gets tough, when, when, when the heat is turned up, guess which, which, which ones are the first ones to go? It's those casual Christians. And so we have to be those who are willing to say, hey, we want to live for the glory of God. That same resolve, again, that we see in the apostles in the first church to obey God rather than men should be within us. But let me help you understand something. This resolve must be rooted. Listen now. This resolve must be rooted not in feelings, not in emotions. It must be rooted in rightly interpreted scripture. See, the things that I'm going to stand for, the things that you should stand for are not the causes and, and, and what's the, the hot thing right now that's going on. What you and I must be willing to stand for is what this word says. It is what these scriptures teach. It's not what I think. It's not what the smartest guy in the room thinks. It's what the word of God says. That's why it's so important to be in God's word so you know what to stand for. So you're not waiting for someone else to tell you, hey, this is what you should believe. This is what you should stand up for. This, no, no, no. You hear and you know what God's word says. Rightly interpreted that. Are, are those are the things that we are supposed to stand up for and obey God rather than man. And so we have the external con- we have the external pressure. We have the external friction. But what about the internal friction? What about the friction in the house? You know that it's not just from the outside that friction happens. It also happens on the inside, right? You know there's issues in, in the church. So check this out. Say this with me. Say conflict, conflict. creates opportunities for growth in leadership-focused discipleship. Conflict creates opportunities for growth in leadership-focused discipleship. Look at chapter 6 here. Chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. We'll read from verse 1 to verse 7 maybe if we make it through there. But we'll start in verse 1. It says, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So the first thing I want you to realize is it says what was happening. The church was multiplying. The church was growing. And here's the thing. Some of us, we don't want the church to grow. Like literally, like, you're so, like, like you are truthfully grateful and happy with your brothers and sisters that you know. You don't want to be part of a mega church and all that kind of stuff. And that's fine. But here's the thing. Others of you are like, yo, I want the church to grow. I want the church to burst at the seams. I want us to go to three services. Hallelujah said no one who's serving in both services. But anyway, um, <laughs> but the reality is this. The reality is that it sounds exciting, right, to have the seats filled. But can I tell you what happens when the seats get filled? If they get filled with people, you know what they get filled with? They get filled with sinners. They get filled with sinners with issues. And then you know what happens? As the church grows, as the church multiplies, you know what also happens? Issues start arising. Issues start multiplying. So when you think about church growth, don't just pray for church growth. Pray for wisdom on how to deal with the church growth. How do you deal with it? And so you have these two groups that are there. Remember, there's, there, there, there was the feast time in Israel, just the, the day of Pentecost, the time that they were there for feasting. So there were all kind of Jews from everywhere that were in Jerusalem at that time. And the scripture says that there were two groups in particular here. The Hebrews and the Hellenists. And so the Hebrews, those were the ones who were the natural-born Palestinian Jews. They're what 
we might call Orthodox Jews. They took the scriptures, the Torah seriously. They were all about holiness and living righteously. The Hellenists were the Jews, and some of your Bibles it says the Greek-speaking Jews. And the reason it says that is because they were the Jews who were part of the diaspora. They were the ones that were part of the Jewish, the Jews that were spread out throughout all of Greek and, all, and were, were influenced by the Greek culture at that time. And what happened is, as they were influenced by the culture, you know what they started doing? They started compromising in areas, and they were like, well, that's okay. Well, that's okay to do that. We don't have to be so legalistic in this area. We don't, you know, all these, and so what happened was, the Jews, the natural-born Hebrews, they were looking at the Hellenists like, hmm, I don't know about you guys. I don't know if you're serious. Here's what I want you to realize, is that truth brings division. Truth alone, I don't, we don't need to be divisive. Truth by itself draws a line in the sand. If you say Jesus is the only way to salvation, you know what you just did? You drew a line in the sand. And, you, and the people who you're sharing this truth with, guess what they get to do? They get to choose. Do I want to believe that truth, hold on to that truth, walk in that truth, or am I going to reject that truth? Just reality. Truth, and, and listen, by, when you are looking at God's word, it is rightful that you look at people and be like, man, you're living according to, this, to the scriptures. We're supposed to look at each other's lives, are we not? We're supposed to be there one for another. We're supposed to hold each other accountable. And so what we have here is we have these Jews. And so the, what, 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 what happens is in that time, right, the Jewish people, they're, 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 they, they have something that what they do is they would um, daily, there were distribution that was given to widows and to the poor in their community. These are the Jewish people. That's what they were doing at that time. When the church comes together, what happens with the church is that then the church decides, and obviously they continue this thing, and they continue to feed and take care of the widows. But there's a problem. The problem is that the, for something happened where the Hebrews were in some way, shape, or form neglecting the Hellenist widows. And so they bring this to the attention of the apostles. And what do the apostles do? Let's keep reading and see what happens. It says this. It says, then the twelve summoned the multitude of disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So wait a second. What did they say? They said, this is something that needs to be taken care of. But we can't take care of it because we cannot take care of God's word, teaching, preaching, and, and that side of the ministry and go wait on tables as well. They couldn't do it all, right? They, they, they weren't able to do it. And so they go on. What do they say? They say, therefore, brethren, seek out. From among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose and they, and, and they went through these seven men. I won't go over their names right now. He, they, they chose these seven men whom they set before the apostles. And when they prayed, they laid their hands on them. And then what does the scripture say? Then the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Conflict creates opportunities for growth in leadership focused discipleship. 
Listen, when I talk about leadership-focused discipleship, here's what you got to realize. If you're a person in here and you're a mature Christian, you're a mature believer, then that means that you are responsible, whether you have a title or not. If you are a mature believer, you are responsible for making disciples. You are responsible for helping others grow in their faith. Even if you are a baby in the Lord, even if you are young in the faith, you still have a responsibility to make disciples, but specifically those who are more mature in the faith. But here's what I need you to understand. Disciples don't just know their Bible, they don't just live their Bible, but they are also those who recognize that they have been called to serve in some capacity in the body of Christ. Are you here? That is what leadership-focused discipleship is. See, these men were men of reputation. They were men who had been around the congregation, had proven themselves. People could attest to their character. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they could attest to their competency. They were men of wisdom. Are you here? This is what we as believers should be growing in, not just in our understanding of what the Bible says, but how is it that God has called me to serve? How is it that God has called me to serve? Because here's what happens. If you are not serving where God wants you to serve, guess what's happening? Something is not getting done. Hello. Or, even worse, someone else is doing your job when they should be doing something else. Are you here? And so God has called you to serve at some capacity, and so you should be seeking how it is that you can grow in this area of being a disciple. That's what they did. They, 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 were, they were leadership focused. They were like, you know, these are what we should be, should be looking for and the people that are going to lead, the people that are going to make sure that things are done right. They have to be people of character. And so when we think about making disciples, again, it's not just getting people to memorize scripture. I like memorizing scripture. It's not just getting people to understand certain doctrines. I love doctrine. But it is getting people to understand or getting them to grow in their character, getting them to grow in their competence, getting them to grow in their willingness to serve as God has called them and created them to serve. The third thing I'll ask you to repeat after me is this. Say friction should keep us together seeking the Lord in prayer. Friction should keep us together seeking the Lord in prayer. Now, after first service, Jonathan said to me, he said, you know, the most scientific thing that you've ever said was that friction keeps us together. I was like, amen, that's great. Friction, the reason why you walk is because of friction, right? Friction sticks us together. We don't like friction, though. Hello. We don't like friction. We, we, we want everything to be smooth sailing. We want everything to just be relaxed. We don't want the friction that is necessary. But what friction should do is it should keep us together. It should keep us together seeking God's face. When the church experienced friction, what did it do? Turn back really quickly to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 23 to verse 31. This is such an important passage of scripture. I love what happens here. After the apostles had been threatened, after they had been told that they were not going to be able to, um, to preach, they were, they were told to be quiet, they, they, they come back and the scripture shows us that they come together with the rest of the body. Look at verse 23. It says, in being let go, they went to their own companions, that's their brothers and sisters in Christ, and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to the Lord with one accord. Say one accord. With one accord. And they cried out thus, Lord, you are God 
who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. That sounds like the book of Genesis chapter 1, does it not? Who, by the mouth of your servant David, now he's getting ready to quote David in the Psalms, have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers there were, were gathered together against the Lord and his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. Again, that sounds like the Gospels. We have those Gospels. They were living through the time of the Gospels. And what was it? To do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. And so again, they have this scriptural um, understanding as they're praying. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants with all boldness that they may speak your word. They didn't ask God to protect them from anything. They asked God to give them boldness to speak his word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. See, I challenge you when you go home to sit down and just start in the Old Testament and look at the foundation that is laid. Because when God's people were, were in the midst of persecuting per persecution, when they were in the midst of turmoil and trial, the scriptures show us what God's people did. They cried out to the Lord collectively. They cried out to God, whether it was Hezekiah crying out to God, whether it was Nehemiah and them crying out to God in the face of their enemies, as their enemies were ridiculing, as their enemies were persecuting. What these men did is they led corporate prayer to come together and to seek God's face, and God responded to them. Church, we have to come back to that place. Just like the people in the book of Acts, they were threatened with their lives if they did not silence their words. And listen, these, these apostles just saw their Savior get crucified, so they knew that these people weren't, weren't like talking out of the side of their mouth, that they were going to say they were going to do something and they weren't going to do it. In reality and in actuality, they saw what happened to Jesus. And so they knew that that would be their plight, that would be their destiny if they continued to preach. And yet, what did they do? They didn't get silent. They cried out to God for boldness so they could preach the gospel because they knew that the gospel changed lives. Church, you have to understand something. The enemy knows the power of the gospel. Therefore, he wants the world to be as resistant as possible to that gospel. And he wants us, the church, to be silent with the gospel. When threats were made, what did they do? They prayed. When leadership was needed, what did they do? They prayed. And the consistent thing that you see, and you can write this down, Acts chapter 13, was the practice of prayer and seeking God's face for God's direction. That is how God led his churches. So here's my question in line with that. Would prayer mark your life in general? Would prayer mark your life? If people looked at you in conflict, would prayer mark your life? If people looked at you in difficulty, would prayer mark your life? When people think about the corporate gathering of prayer together, when we gather together, are you part of that collective gathering of believers together in prayer? Are you part of that? 
because our lives should be marked by prayer. So here's the question. How do we grow in prayer? Because I think that this is so very important. If we are going to be a church that sees the results that we see in the book of Acts, we're going to have to be a people that is given to prayer the way that they were. So we have to grow in our prayer. How do we do that? First of all, you can write these things down. The first thing is devote yourself to Scripture. If you want to grow in prayer, you need to devote yourself to Scripture. Devotion to Scripture, why? Because devotion to Scripture will grow your faith, will help you to have a growing faith. As you are in God's Word, your faith will be growing. Your faith in God will grow. As you get into this word, as you seek him, your faith in God will be growing. And so you will have a growing faith. The second thing is discipline yourself to pray the scripture. So don't just get into scripture. Don't just learn what the scripture says. Discipline yourself to pray the scriptures. Listen, this is tough. Because for some of us, especially a guy like me, right, it's really easy for me to sit down and I don't have to go and open up a Bible and start thinking, okay, what does the Bible say? I got plenty to pray for and, and I've been praying for a long time. And so for me, I have to discipline myself to pray the scriptures. I have to sit down and as I'm in the word of God, I have to say, you know what, I'm not just going to pray with the first thing that comes to my mind. I'm going to meditate on these words. And as I meditate on these words, I'm going to learn to pray. I'm going to discipline myself to pray according to God's word. Not my will, but God's will. Not my thoughts, but God's thoughts. See, those are powerful prayers. So what happens is when I devote myself to the word, my faith grows. When I discipline myself to pray the scriptures, my faith is focused. Now I have a focused faith. And then the other thing is this, deepen your commitment to corporate prayer. Whenever there's an opportunity for you to pray corporately, whenever there's an opportunity for you to come together with the body and pray, whether it's in your core connect life group, whether it's on the Friday night, the first Friday of every month that we gather together to pray and worship and seek God's faith, face, whenever you have the opportunity to do that, make it a point to be there. Why? Because we don't want you to just have growing faith. We don't want you to just have focused faith, but we want you to have unified faith. See, when you, see, see again, we got to get, we got to, we have to be set free from this individualized, individualistic Christianity that we are so accustomed to. Oh, well, I prayed for my hour today or my 30 minutes today or my 15 minutes today or my 10 minutes today or my two, whatever it is. I prayed. And so you prayed and it's all good. But wait a second. Have you prayed with the body? Have you prayed with your brothers and sisters? That may not be able to happen every day, but every opportunity you have, you should be present seeking God's face. So that seeking God's face. So that way we can do what? So we can be unified in faith. So we can stand together. We're not just praying about me, myself, and I and mines. Hello. But we're praying about things that are bigger than us. We're praying about things that are outside of us. We're praying about things that are greater than us. And so as I close, here's my closing question. Where is friction hindering your growth rather than provoking it? Where is friction hindering your growth rather than provoking it? See, again, we start to feel fr friction. We start to feel pressure. We start to feel hostility. And you know what's an automatic thing for us to do? So I'm back up. I'm going to run. I'm not going to stay. I'm not going to press on. I'm going to go do my own thing. And instead, what should happen is that friction, that hostility, that stuff that you're feeling, that should provoke you to grow. That should provoke you to see God more. 
That should provoke you to gather with your brothers and sisters more. And so my hope and my encouragement is this. If you're a follower of Jesus in this place, if you're a follower of Jesus online with us today, if you are a follower of Christ, don't let the pressure push you back. Let the pressure move you forward. So I'll stand on our feet and let's pray together. Father, we come to you today and we humble our hearts before you, thanking you so much because we know that you use this pressure in our lives to unify us more with your heart, with your mind, and with one another. We thank you because we know that you are working all things out in our lives according to your will. I pray for my brothers, my sisters, that their faith would not fail them, that they may feel the pressures of life, but that they would press on, that they would not allow external pressure to hold them back, that they would not allow internal friction to hinder them from walking in unity, God, but that the friction that we experience, whether it is external or internal, Father, that it would bring us together, that we would unify as one body, and that we would live for your glory. Lord, we want to see a mighty, mighty move of your Holy Spirit in this earth. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use us as you will and as you see fit. We thank you for this, God, and we pray these things in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen. Come on and give the Lord a hand of praise.